pray, God, that it would do a mighty work in us and, and, and maybe shift some of our thinking so that we might understand what it means to be your body and to find the joy and the fulfillment that comes from living the way you've designed it. Thank you for this time now, God. Allow our focus to be on your word and our spirit, be receptive to your spirit, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And I pray this in his most holy name. Amen. Well, we have this great privilege of looking here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And what I'm excited about with these verses in this passage is that it really gives us a definition of the church gives us a real definition of, of how Luke wanted to describe these first converts, these 3,000 people that had placed their faith in Jesus, and they gathered together as, this, as the body of Christ, and the Spirit of God has come upon them, and they repented of their sins, and they're embracing uh, all that God has and what He's doing in the world. And what we have here is a definition of what it was like for these people in these first days. And what I like about this passage, and I've been excited about this passage, is because to me it operates a little bit like a, a tuning fork. You know, if you have a guitar, if any of you are guitar players, you know that you can take a guitar and you can kind of tune it to itself. That means that I could take Ken's guitar, I could take any string, put it out of tune, and then tune all the rest of the strings of that, to that one string that's out of tune, and it'll sound in tune. It will. It will sound good until we get it up to something that actually is in tune, and then you'll discover how out of tune it is. And what happens in the church is that oftentimes we, throughout history, and, and if you just study church history, you can see this, the church at times gets a little out of tune, and it kind of just gets out of tune and gets comfortable with being out of tune. And then suddenly what happens is you come up to something that is in tune, and you go, wow, we're far away from what God designed. This is what I would call the tuning fork for the church. This is the moment where we begin to understand what the church really is. This week I was thinking about a conversation I had with a pastor who was part of a very big, big kind of mega church, and we were discussing church philosophy principles. And he said, well, the main principle that governs our elder board is Walmart. We use their business principles when we design our church because Walmart knows how to go into a community. They know how to grow. They know how to make money. They know how to get bigger, 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 bigger. And we've applied those principles, and it's worked. We have you know, tens of thousands of people and satellite locations everywhere, and the Walmart principles worked. And I was thinking about that conversation because I was thinking, hmm, we all know that's not right, right? <laughs> you don't have to be the deepest theologian to realize Walmart might not be the tuning fork you want for your church. Okay, maybe there's something else that should tune your church. This passage is that. And here's, where, here's the uniqueness of this passage. I'm going to tell you up front. And this is where it will kind of fly in the face a little bit of our church and our culture, right? The Western culture of church in America. The uniqueness of this passage is this. That when Luke describes these 3,120 believers... He doesn't describe them with an institutional description. He describes them based upon the commitment of the people involved. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. It's easy to say, 
what kind of church do you go to? And our answer could be, well, we go to a Bible preaching church, or we go to a seeker-sensitive church, or we go to a small community church. Or we, and we can define the church based upon its institutional boundaries. What kind of church do you go to? We go to a church that preaches expositionally. What kind of church do you go to? Oh, we go to a church that is really, you know, missional. We go to a church that seekers, right? We define it based upon the institution. When Luke was describing the church, he said, no, I'm going to describe for you the individual commitment of all of the people who were involved. So, if we were to flip that around and say, okay, how would that look if we were to apply that today? We'd say, I go to a church where there's people committed to Jesus. I go to a church where there's people committed to the apostles' teaching. I go to a church where there's people who are committed to fellowship, right? Instead of defining the institutional boundaries... Luke defined the commitment of the body because the emphasis of the church wasn't on its institutional uh, structure. There was one, and it developed throughout the years. But you'll notice that the structure developed for one reason, to support the commitment of the people. And so the focus we're going to have today is not on what is the best style of church to have, what's the best style of music, or what is the best style of clothing to wear, you know, what is the best style of buildings or structures or things like that. The, commit, the, the focus then is to say, now what we're going to look at is the commitment of you and me as members of the body of Christ. What are we individually and collectively committed to that's the description of the church we're going to see this today we're going to see that there were five things well four and the last one is really god's fruit but the commitments are this a commitment to the truth we'll see that a commitment and then a reverence towards god and then benevolence towards others worship of god and advancement of the gospel what i would say is that those are the five core values of the people within the church the first century church those core values we will see carried on as the church expands throughout the roman empire and people stay committed to the truth and reverence towards god and to each other and worship and advancement and i would say that that's really the best way to describe a church and so the focal point of this message today will not be a whole new bunch of programs we're going to unleash. It's actually going to be a very simple challenge. I'll tell you what will be right up front. Are these our values? Do we really say, yeah, this is what I live for, this is the driving thing? Because this is really the description of the church. Rather than thinking about how can we kind of create the best structure to bring in the most people, which we don't do as a leadership team, but, 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 uh, but, but it's easy to get kind of caught into a marketing mindset of the church, and the church is a product, and you guys are consumers, and we really want you to choose our product over the other churches in town. Instead of thinking that way, maybe we put the challenge back to say, you know what, if you're part of the body of Christ, what are the values in your heart? What are the things you really value? As you go through your week, you live your life, as you make decisions with your money and your time and your family and your entertainment or whatever, what are the values that really mark who you are? 
What are the values that you're instilling in your children? What are the values you're communicating to your coworkers? What are the values? The church was defined by the core values of its believers. We're going to see that today. Let's look at the first one. Commitment to the truth. Acts 2.42 is this verse here. And what you're going to see really are four commitments in Acts 2.42. And I call those kind of truth commitments. It's the summary really of the church. And, it, and, and it's once they embrace the truth of what Peter said, this started becoming the commitment of their life. You'll see it here. Look at Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. A couple things I want you to notice here. First of all, this is a description of the 3,120 people, right? There were 3,000 people got saved, that trusted Christ, they were baptized, they now were brought in to fellowship. The Spirit of God had descended upon them. And it says now that these 3,120 people, notice, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Two things that, that, that I want you to notice. First of all, is I want you to notice that in the English Standard Version, the ESV, they put these thes in front of things, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's good that you see all those thes there because... That's the right way to interpret that. These are very specific things that we're going to unpack. Very specific things that they were committed to. But I want you to notice that they were devoted. One thing I wish the ESV would have put in there is they would have put, like some of the other translations, continually devoted, which is really probably a better way to say that. It means this, that, that this became the defining characteristic of their life. This became the thing that defined them. So they weren't defined as Blackhawks fans or Bears fans or military people or sports people or rock and rollers or whatever. They didn't put some anything other than they said, this is now the defining characteristic of my life. This is who I am. This defines me. This defines every decision I make. This defines, that's what devoted to means. It means it becomes the defining characteristic of your life. That's why some translations put continually devoted. The idea is it was a way of life now. Now, what were they continually devoted to? For four things. We'll just touch on them quickly here. First one is apostles' teaching. What, did, what are they saying there? Well, remember this. Jesus, in the end of the Gospel of Luke, opened the eyes of the, of the apostles to understand Christ in the Old Testament, if you want to just say it that simple way. That Christ's work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his kingship, his messiahship, all is there in the Old Testament. They didn't get it. And so Jesus, before he ascends, he says, I'm going to give you an understanding of this. The Spirit of God comes upon, opens their eyes to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and now, all of a sudden, they're now preaching that. And we see Peter doing that. We, we studied his sermon. And he showed you in some Psalms in the book of Joel how all of these things pointed to what Jesus did. These people who believed said, you know what, I want to understand this Jesus. I want to be committed to this. I want to know how you are interpreting the Bible so that we can see this, that this would be our teaching now. So we're going to reject the rabbinic teaching 
of the Old Testament that doesn't have Christ at the center. We're going to embrace the apostles' teaching of Christ. That's what they were saying. They wanted to know this. The truth of Christ and who he is is what they lived to know. That was their first thing they were committed to. Notice the next thing they were committed to. Second commitment was to the fellowship. I'll give you the Greek word for fellowship because many of you know this, especially if you were around the church for a long time. You used to have groups called koinonia groups. Do you remember that a long time ago? The word's a very popular word. Koinonia, that's the word fellowship. The word itself really carries this idea. It actually means completely like-minded. Completely like-minded. But not only just like-minded, completely like-minded and completely devoted to each other. That's what koinonia means. So koinonia isn't like a coffee group where you get together and just drink coffee together and hang out and talk. It's actually people saying, I am totally in with you. This is what I think of, and I'm sorry because this is really lame, but whenever I think of the word koinonia, I think of the Marine Corps. Now, I was not a Marine. I was in the Air Force, which is like the opposite of the Marines, right? Okay? Like on that other spectrum, right? We have air conditioning. You know, we live by airports. We fly places, right? Marines, different. Different group of people in the Marines. Okay? And that's a good thing. If you're a Marine, please do not come up and beat me up afterwards. Okay? Marines are, are a different group of people, completely like-minded, completely devoted to each other, completely connected in such a degree that the Marines have this motto, we leave no one behind, right? If they're off in a battle and one of their guys died, 50 guys will die trying to get that one guy out of, the dead guy out of the field. They are just that committed to each other. It's a commitment that is beyond comprehension. I always think of that when I think of koinonia because that's what the word means. It means radically committed to someone else. That's why it's the fellowship, the koinonia. We're going to see in a little bit that that commitment was so radical that people actually were selling their houses and their land to give money away to people. That's how committed they were. That was the defining characteristic, right? When they embraced the truth of Jesus, they embraced the body of Christ. They were so into it. Third thing they were committed to, the breaking of, actually, the way you would really translate that would be uh, the breaking of the bread. The bread. The the is in front of the word bread. If you read, you can look at 1 Corinthians 11 at another time, and you can see this, that when the church met, they had a meal together. And everybody left a little bread and a little wine on their plate afterwards. And after the meal, they would then partake of the Lord's table, what we celebrated here this morning. And they would be reminded of the body and blood of Christ. They would be reminded of what he did. And the cross was central. And what they said is, we are committed to this time, celebrating this bread and cup, so that we would be reminded that Christ died and rose and ascended and that his blood was shed to forgive us and to bring us into the new covenant with God. They were committed to that cross-centered life. That was up front in their commitment. And it was part of every time they gathered. They would gather together in homes and they would have a meal together. And at the, every time they gathered for a meal, they'd leave a little bread and a little, little wine on the uh, plate. And uh, at the end, they'd say, you know what? Let's remember the body broken for us and the blood shed for us. And let's partake of this because that's why we're together. That's why we're here. They were reminded of it 
in that way. And they were committed to that. And finally, they were committed to prayer. It's actually the prayer. And you say, okay, what, you know, whenever a word the is in front of something, it's talking about something specific. So what was the prayer? Best kind of understanding of this is that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer, sometimes we just recite the Lord's Prayer. We memorize it and we recite it. But really, there are certain things that, that Jesus wanted them to pray. You know, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? We, we pray, we worship God. God, you're worthy, you're holy. We're going to lift our voices up in praise to you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray mission. God, use us and allow your kingdom to expand without hindrance. Allow your name to be made known to the nations of the world. Right? And on and on it goes. Your kingdom, your... And then he, he says, okay, and God, man, we, we pray. We need our, our food. We, we need our provision from you. And so you pray for your daily bread because you're our provider. We pray that we'd stand in grace, that the same grace that was given to me, God, let me give it out to others. We pray for wisdom. God, I don't want to walk and fall into temptation. I want to see the evil that's in the world. God, show it to me. Let me, let me be wise. And God, let me just stand in your protective hand as we walk for your kingdom and glory. See, that's the kind of prayer that we're taught. You know, worship and mission and provision and protection and wisdom. And I think when they prayed, that's what they were praying. They were committed to that. Now, all four of those things, right? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. That is what happens when you hear and believe by faith the message that Peter preached, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Savior. This now becomes the defining characteristic of that faith. How do you know if you have faith in Christ? Suddenly these things should start stirring up inside of you. And they become your commitment. Now that's the first thing, the commitment to truth. What's the second thing they were committed to? Second value, they had reverence towards God. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I want you to notice this. The apostles are preaching. God's allowing them to do all kinds of miracles. All kinds of miracles. We don't know what the miracles were, but we see some of them. We'll see them in the chapters to come. They're healing people, right? I mean, you know, people who are lame would get up and walk, and they get up and walk. And blind people can't see. All of a sudden, see, and they can see. And these kind of miracles are happening that are so clear, so obvious, that the people are beginning to realize God is huge. God is powerful. And their reverence for God absolutely got huge. You know, the church has kind of swung its pendulum with this reverence thing a lot. Because <clears throat> what tends to happen is wherever we tend to go, we, you know, our flesh tends to corrupt it. So it used to be, you know, that, that there was a sense of an awe and a reverence. So when they would build, a, build like a, a meeting space for worship, they would, you know, build big cathedrals and put all the... Uh, you know, beautiful pictures and stuff on the ceilings and stained glass to lift your eyes up and to get a sense of awe and wonder and reverence towards God. Now, over time, people became a bit legalistic about it, and, and then suddenly God became so transcendent 
that we forgot that he was with us. And then the church kind of swings the pendulum the other way and says, hey, listen, you know, when they met, they were meeting in homes, and, and we, we, we can dial this back a little bit because God's with us, man. He sees us when we're throwing up. He sees us when, we're, when we have bedhead. He sees all kinds of things, right? We don't always have to be thinking that, you know, we're, we're always standing in the presence of, of God, and he doesn't want to see us when we're tired or sick. He's with us all the time. But then what can tend to happen is we lose sense of the reverence towards God, and we lose sense that we stand in the presence of the King of Kings. And Lord of lords, and he should be sought after with awe. I always think about this, the balance of this, like as a parent. I always want my kids to know, you've heard me say this before, you can say whatever you want to me. Share your heart, but don't forget I'm your dad. Don't forget I'm your dad. So there is a line, and if you cross it, I'll let you know. Share your heart, but don't lose respect. Share your heart with your mom, but don't lose respect for her as your mom. God is with us, but he's also way bigger than us. And the church saw that. And there was a value of a reverence towards God that they had. So they had this truth commitment, this reverence. Look at the third thing that they had. They had benevolence towards others. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. This is just the description of koinonia. Had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's a very powerful statement. I want you to notice, there's three things I want you to notice there. First thing, I want you to notice that the church was together. Notice they say this. And all who believed were together. That is a very simple description, but it's a very powerful one. Our problem in the Western church is that we see the church as a, sometimes a commodity that we choose. Right? I got a billion things I got to do today. One of the things I'm going to do is I, I'm going to go to church if I have time. I'll be with the people of God if I have time. Right now I don't have time because we've got to do this and this and we've got to do that. We've got to get this done. We've got to get that. Right? And so of all the choices, yes, church kind of puts itself up there as one of them. And then that's a little bit of that consumer mindset that can take over, right? Right, it's there. We sometimes don't see the church as, you know what, you guys are part of the body of Christ. And we're like united in Jesus. And you're never going to get away from me. Right? You can't get away. Because I'm going to be in heaven with you. We're together. Somebody's crying back there because of that, right? No, I'm teasing. No! Dad, no! <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Not him, Dad! No, I'm teasing. Right. No, I mean, they, we're together, and they recognize, man, you're not just this person you, you, in my life that I'm choosing to be around because I like your clothes or I like your music style or I like this about you. Man, we are together in Christ. We are together in Christ. Therefore, if I pull away from you, I'm pulling away from a part of Jesus. That's what he's saying. They were together, man. They, they really understood this. There was something different here. Notice they were also unified. They had all things in common. This is not some kind of teaching of communism, some kind of political statement here. This is a simple understanding 
you know what, you're in my life, and what I have is yours because you're in my life. Right? Could you, could you imagine this? Picture me and my family. We're all going off on a bike ride together. And you see us out there, right? We're cruising around the park. And uh, I got a water bottle in my bike thing, right? It's there, and, and I'm going along. And one of my children is dehydrated, and they're passing out. And, uh, and you see it, and you say, hey, Steve, your child over there is passing out. And they don't have a water bottle on their bike. And I say, well, this is my water jug. They can't have it. It's mine. Right? It's my water bottle. And they didn't bring their own water bottle. That's their fault. You'd be really put off by that, wouldn't you? Like, seriously. You'd be calling the leaders of the church. You'd be saying, Steve, I think you need another job. Right? You'd be upset by that. Why? That is your daughter. It's not your water bottle. Right? You get the idea. They saw the same thing, man. It wasn't just that, well, we go to the same church. It was, you're in my life. And if you need a drink from my water bottle, you got it. Take the water bottle. It doesn't matter. I'm not giving it away. It's all staying in the same family. Right? If I give you this, I'm not giving it away because we're in the same family. And maybe a year later, I'm going to need it back, and you're going to give it back to me. Because we're in the same family. That's what they're saying. They had all things in common. They, they saw themselves it's to such a degree. Not only were they unified and had all things in common, the third thing then is that they gave to each other. Notice, they were selling their property, their possessions. They were sharing with all as anyone might have a need. They understood something, and I, and I want to point something out to you that might even help this make even more sense. In the Jewish system, the Jewish culture, if you read through the law, was the responsibility of the family to care for the family. So they didn't set up massive governmental systems here. I'm not making any political speeches, okay? This has nothing to do with election on Tuesday or anything. Just describing something to you. They didn't set up massive political systems to care for the poor because each family was required to care for their own family. Okay, so, so my children would be required to care for me when I w w became unable to work. Just as I was to provide for them when they were unable to work as children. We care for each other. We're in the family. And so what would happen is that if somebody was left outside of the family, it was bad for them. It was bad because it was the family's job to take care of the family. The church did something radical when the Spirit of God came upon each other, uh, upon these people, they began, to, they, they realized something. We are now all family. We are now united with the same Spirit. And so the idea of the concept of caring for family got embedded into the church because they realized something. You're my brothers, you're my sisters, therefore I have to care for you. And this thing that was just reserved for my wife and my children is now including you because we're all brothers and sisters. And that's why they gave to each other. See, they recognized something. All of this idea of benevolence comes down to this fundamental understanding. I'm not choosing an institution when I become a Christian. I'm brought into a new family. So you're part of this family. 
and therefore as being part of this family, I care for you, and you care for me. If you have a need, I meet your need. If I have a need, right, on and on. We, I, if you have a need, I'll meet it. If I have a need, you meet it, because we're family. It's the same thing. If my child is dehydrating, saying, Dad, can I have a drink out of your water bottle? Absolutely. You're part of my family. So if I'm giving you something, or if you're giving me something, you're actually not giving it away. It's staying in the family. It's staying in, a, in the family. See, that was the commitment they had because they recognized the relationship was deeper. It wasn't an institutional relationship they were in. It was a relational relationship. People said. Then it moves on now. Okay, so they were had a commitment to truth, they had a reverence towards God, benevolence towards each other. Notice what's next. They worship God. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. You know, they have 3,120 people. They don't have a building big enough to meet all those people. But they valued that corporate meeting, and so they all gathered in the temple, which would be the one place they would go. They'd go out to the courtyard, and the apostles would teach in the courtyard. That's what we're going to see when the first persecution comes. It's because the apostles are teaching these 3,000 people. They're gathering in the courtyard, and notice they're gathering every day to hear these guys talk about Jesus. Every day they are gathering. And then they're leaving the temple, and they're going to each other's homes. They're eating together, participating in, in, in celebrating Christ in the table, giving away their goods, and everyone's just rejoicing. In fact, we'll look at it in a minute, but even verse 47, they're just praising God. This is a great time. But what I want you to notice, though, when we talk about the worship of God here, is that this worship wasn't considered to be like a singular one-time event. They had a lifestyle of worship. They were just living before the face of God all, every day. They were going to the temple every day having meals in each other's homes. Every day celebrating the Lord's table. Every day giving away their goods to each other. This is, this is what I said. They were devoted to this. This was their lifestyle. They have a completely different way of living their life. It is a radical description. It's radical. It's, it's so powerful because they place this priority on God, on Christ, on each other. It's, it's, it's completely a radical way. You can't manufacture this with programs. We can't all of a sudden say, okay, here's the church's new programs. Right? I mean, we could have all kinds of programs. We could say, every day, come to the office and I'll be teaching. Every day, you know... Go to, we're going to set up different homes. You're going to go to different homes. You can set up all kinds of programs. And maybe because you get stirred in a sermon, everyone shows up the first couple weeks, but eventually it dwindles off. Why? Because this is first and foremost the commitment of people's hearts. If it's not in your heart, you're not going to do it. That's why I say there's no programs uh, announcements coming at the end of this because you can't manufacture this. Either this is our commitment or it's not. That's what it comes down to. But notice the last one now. So we've seen... This commitment to truth, reverence to God, benevolence, to a, kind of a worship of God, daily worship and, and daily fellowship all combined together, which leads to the last one, the advancement of the gospel. This is really God's commitment. 
um, God's, uh, you know, God's work in the midst of this, because notice verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they are in this continual state of worship, and they understood worship as being fellowship, teaching, celebration of the cross, giving, giving to each other. That, that was worship. And this praising God is going. But notice the fruit of this. People saw this and said, hey, that's really cool. That's the impact. This is actually the gospel impact in a community. When individual believers are committed to this, it gets the attention of society. Could you imagine this? What it would look like to have 3,120 people living this kind of radically committed life. Radically coming to the temple. Radically hearing the teaching of Christ. Radically serving each other. Radically saying, you know what? We'll do without. We'll just give this to this person. People going, what is going on? This is huge. This is making such an impact in the community that people are repenting. And this is all God's work, because notice, the Lord added to their numbers. God's the one who's doing this. God's the one who's saving these people. This is his work. He's adding to their number. And the church wasn't going, oh, no, he's added more people. Do you remember the days when it was only 3,000? Oh, I'm so remote. No, come on. This is about the extension of the kingdom. Bring them on. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? You know, we were figuring it out. We're trying to look at this statistically. There's a possibility in DeKalb, DeKalb County that we could have 69,000 non-believers in DeKalb County. There's a possibility of 69,000 non-believers. Think about that. Could you imagine if they all repented tomorrow? Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be a huge problem in one sense. Right? What would you do with 69,000 people? But it would be so great. 69,000 people came to faith in Christ. Celebrate that. Man, God could do that. God took 120 people. And in one day, it turned into 3,000. It's God. There's no programs with that. There's no marketing strategies. It's whether or not 120 people say, I'm all in for Jesus. And 3,120 people say, I'm all in for Jesus. And 5,000 People say, I'm all in for Jesus, and, and on and on it goes. But it's the internal commitment of the church. You see, there's programs that can't do this because programs can't manufacture that kind of love, right? Am I right? Programs cannot do that. There's no book I can read that could make me love my wife or my children. Right? No, no human written book. You're going to say, okay, I'm struggling with this. I'm going to read this book and it'll change my life. That doesn't exist. The only thing that can, can change my heart is saying, Jesus, give me your love. And, I, and I'm in his word. And, and that can, changes me to being committed to him and his truth. And, and when that converts it to that kind of love, great things happen. I believe this is why when Jesus said in John, recorded in the Gospel of John, by your love for each other, the world will know you're my disciples. That's, that's what this is. And so now it's advancing and the gospel's going forth. So we have this commitment. We have this reverence. We have this benevolence. We have this worship. 
And then we have it actually then making an impact in the community. And more souls are getting saved. More and more and more. Because God's using that radical commitment to advance his kingdom. So, what does that mean for us? I've said this a million times already today. No program announcements. It's just one simple question. I've been asking myself this all week. We should all be asking ourselves this question. Where is my heart not tuned? Right? If, 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 if we have five values there, and that's a guitar, and each one of those are strings, which one of your strings are out of tune? Which one's off? Because the question we have to ask ourselves is, let's not define Kishwaukee Bible Church by a building, by a program, by a style of music, by the pastor's dress. Please don't define it by the way I dress. <laughs> you know, by any of that. We should be committed to say, we're going to define Kishwaukee Bible Church by the commitment of its people to the gospel heart. This is a gospel heart. And so the challenge then is to say, God, tune my heart that this would be my values. So that being said, I can't really say anything to do that in your life. That's the role of the Spirit, so why don't we pray? And just ask that God would tune our heart to this. So just join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, this passage is so challenging because it easier to run a program it's easier to try to use marketing tools and things like that that requires nothing but just money but Lord I, I pray that we push beyond that and, and think through the value of our own heart God I pray for all of us in this room myself included as your follower, somebody who wants to follow you, God, would you tune our hearts to these areas, Lord? Make us committed, so committed that we would just know Christ. We'd want to know that teaching. and We committed to each other and to the cross and to praying for your glory and your kingdom and your mission and your advancement and, and our provision and wisdom and discernment and protection, all of these things that God, may we be committed to prayer life of that. Lord, we, may we never lose sight of how awesome you are. Forgive us for the times that we treat you and as if you're, you're less than us. May we never lose sight of that reverence. God, may we be committed to each other. May we not see the church as a it's just something we've chosen, but may we see it a, a group of relationships we're committed to. And that we're together as a family. And God, I pray that we'd worship you from the depths of who we are, but we'd worship in community and in fellowship. Being stirred by the needs of others and, and, and seeing each other as such family members that we couldn't help but not meet the needs. And Lord, may that radical commitment make such an impact that we could actually see 
69,000 non-believers in our county trust in Christ. May the radical commitment of just a few hundred people in a room make an exponential growth among people who are in rebellion towards you. And may they be pulled into the family of God. God, that's the value. That's it. That's the heart of the church, Lord. May, make that true for us. Change us from our individualistic selfishness to a community, a family committed to your glory and your honor and Christ and each other so that the world would know how great Jesus is. Stir our hearts, God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.